I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we look back at the week in review, what movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode, move on to the main event, a main topic of conversation or main review, and finish up with film faves, our respective list of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic, often marching backwards through time. And in this episode... Our main event will be a review of Pixar's latest film, Onward. And film faves will finally get back on track with the march backwards through time, looking at the decade of the 70s. I think film faves has kind of been on hiatus in this regard since, oh, roughly November, so it'll be good to get back into the swing of looking back in time and and seeing what sort of exciting discoveries we've found. But more on that later. First, let's look at the week in review. I did not watch much since the last episode. That wasn't anything in preparation for this episode, uh, film phase-wise. So, Shanna, I understand you had a new exciting discovery on HBO now. What was that? My discovery is Watchmen. And tell us a little bit about this. This is the TV series, yes? Yeah, there's only nine episodes, not even ten. So it's a very self-contained story. It's There's not going to be another season. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Apparently I did some research and... Uh, you know, whoever uh, names are lost on me right now, but whoever made it, there's, there's, they've stated this is a contained story. We don't need to make more. However, I understand why people want more because the ending was very good. So it's hard for me to say anything without spoiling anything. So what I will say is there's fantastic performances. I do wish there were more episodes. I will also say it's a really good story loop. It starts in one spot and ends where it needs to end. And I think the best way to look at Watchmen is to see Watchmen as a medium of telling stories of our past, present, future with a particular issue. So whether it's racism, sexism, you know, whatever the isms are or phobias, that's how I view Watchmen and that helps me not be super precious about Watchmen because it's just a different way of telling us a story and making us open our eyes to what's happening now uh, through past events. The showrunner and creator is Damon Lindelof, by the way, who of course got his start more or less with Lost and has developed many a thing like Star Trek Into Darkness and other such things. So I want to mention that. I had you watch it just to see first. Watch the first episode. Tell me what you think. Is it something I should really invest myself in? Right? Because, again, what's one of the first things that you and I connected on when we first met? It was Watchmen, the it movie. W- c- correct. And all the different versions they released. 
Right. Now, this show is not at all related to the movie. It's a sequel to the comic, the original graphic novel, right? But it's something nonetheless that we re- we related to. And so you watched it. You fell in love with it. You encouraged me to check it out. I watched a couple episodes. And what you're saying is right. It does decide to expand on themes about race and, and other other issues. But, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know what you're saying. But yeah. for me, like, as a sequel to the graphic novel, more or less, it didn't sit right in terms of honoring that graphic novel. It was just a lot of elements I just I, I just couldn't go with. And, of course, can't give details here. I shouldn't give details here. But I just couldn't go with it on where it was going. And it just didn't quite, I don't know didn't play well for me so i stopped after the third episode uh and you're like fine i'm gonna keep on running yeah and honestly there were a few episodes that i wish you had watched with me so that i could talk to you about it because you want someone to talk to about it right well because you're my person and we connected on watchmen and it would have been fun to sure at least sure. talk about this one sure and I think it's fine that things are being challenged, and I think it's fine that things are being referenced, and I think it's fine that things are being nostalgically touched again in this series. I have no problem with this series. I I really like the direction it went. And you're saying it's definitely a self-contained story, a 10-episode story. There's no further... Seasons. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say what I want to say, but it's too spoilery. So I think that people should give it a chance, mm-hmm. and I think that they should finish it, and they will see why it is the way it is. You have to watch till the last episode mm-hmm. to be able to understand how self-contained it actually is. They're not actually trying to break off, you know five more seasons or whatever they're not trying to be the new thing they're trying to do something else and i can't even say what it is because it's it's so spoilery uh which is unfortunate but i think people should give it a chance and push through very cool so that is watchmen which is available on hbo now for anybody interested uh next you didn't watch anything else on your own right nope okay I want to make sure. So uh, let's move on to our week in review. We got to knock out one more show that we are catching up with. We are fans of Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. (laughs) And and Lynn Shelton. I'm a big fan of Lynn Shelton. Lynn Shelton does direct a handful of episodes in this series. Uh, We caught up with season three of Glow. I could not believe. I thought season three dropped in like November or something. It dropped in August. So we are literally at least six months behind on this show. And I think in another six months or so, the next season is going to drop. So hopefully maybe we can stay on top of that. But we did knock out season three. So this season is featuring the group of gals. In Las Vegas, they've taken their show to Las Vegas since they could not continue in their previous situation. 
And it's kind of about what happens and what sort of opportunities come about in Las Vegas with this, with this opportunity. Uh, Shannon, what sort of thoughts did you have about this season? There were a couple really standout episodes for me. I think the one episode where they go camping and they're away from the wrestling, they're away from the, the hotel casino experience, and they're just healing and connecting with each other. And I just, I just really like that particular episode because I don't care how set up this is. I think this is a show that's great at representing a lot of, a lot of people. You have different cultural beliefs, different religions, different orientations being represented in this show with all these characters. And all of those things come together and they help each other heal and move forward. And this, what's cool about it is not all of those things got dealt with. Like, there's still room for another episode like this next season. So I hope that they do that again because I, I, just, I just find those very helpful and reassuring that we're trying to move forward as humanity and heal and, yeah. So you're talking about episode six. Which is called yeah. Outward Bound. Yeah, and it was a longer episode, right? I don't know how long it is offhand, but it is one great example of how the season digs a little bit deeper with characters and character dynamics, uh, how they get along with each other. And, you know, certain characters who maybe didn't have much room to breathe in previous seasons we dig a little bit more underneath the surface of them in, in episodes like episode six outward bound. And that's one thing that I really appreciated about the season. There are still a couple characters, particularly the old biddies who I feel like the season still doesn't scratch below the surface on, Mm. but the, but that's not the case for most of the characters. It's really interesting to see, uh, you know, different pairs going off together and, and reacting to each other. And it's interesting, even that, even with that, it doesn't get as, what's the word, dramatic as, or melodramatic as I, I, I could see a situation becoming, which I kind of appreciate the, the series for, uh, because things, but things still manage to get r- quite real between characters and even near the end of the season, I think it's in a very glow Christmas episode oh, ten. Oh, that was great! You I know, loved that one. Towards the end of it, I even got a little misty uh, at one point. You know, yeah, uh, because it can be quite a touching series at times. I I absolutely love the characters in this show. I. I was talking to you off mic the other day, Shanna, about how, like, you know, kind of going through some of the characters. Ruth, played by Allison Brie, is arguably one of the main characters of the ensemble. And I, I feel like she's such a well-rounded and well-developed character that sometimes I love her and sometimes she drives me nuts. And I, I say that with affection to the, to the writers because I think they've developed her so well that she feels like a person, you know? 
And, you know, at this point, I really love Debbie Egan, played by Betty Gilpin. Carmen, played by Brittany Young, is such Mm -hmm. a a sweetheart. I love Um, that character a lot. Yeah, we see a little bit. We dig a little bit more into her and how she's feeling. I love Mark Maron's Sam. He has developed so much since the first episode of the series. You know, where he was just like this outrageous, hilarious asshole now he is he's still a little bit of an asshole, but he's got a lot of heart. He's grown a lot of uh, a lot because of his experiences with these women and other experiences. I think it was season two that revealed a daughter character. Yeah, you know, and that yeah. daughter does have a presence in season three as well. That definitely might have direction into season four too, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're done with that story. I love Melanie, played by Jackie Tone. I think she's a character that we dig into a lot more. She seems like, on the surface, a party girl who just loves sex. And then we see a little bit more of her, uh, more sides, more shades to her as a character. Uh, Of course, also one of my favorite characters is Rhonda, played by Kate Nash, who is now married to Bash, who I also love, and is kind of dealing with that and dealing with the the realities of being married to someone so wealthy and meeting his mom and all that sort of stuff. I, I did enjoy that episode, yeah. Yes, played by Elizabeth Perkins. I love Elizabeth Perkins. <laughs> you know... Oh, and um, uh, who plays Welfare Queen? What is her name? Oh, yes. In the story? Tamay, played Tamay. by Kia Stevens. I want to know more of her because she feels like my kind of hero. We do you know? get more of her her struggle in this season as well yeah and that's actually a good point we actually see how a lot of the characters are struggling with things yep and everybody is and i just i except the buddies i know nothing about the buddies <laughs> uh and Did you even know it's really cool just as a limitless i think in terms of how well they're developed can you tell me the the first names of the buddies no, but I don't really focus on names anyway, so no, I don't know. Well, I don't know their names. Cheryl and Carol? I don't know. <laughs> no, it is... I just lost it. Don and Stacy. Oh, Don okay. and Stacy. I, I think the fact that I, I couldn't even say that yeah. is is uh, indi- indicative of how well-developed they are. I, I also feel like, you know, there was an episode where they switched roles, like they switched who their wrestling characters, characters were. And... I really like that. I feel like that's a season five thing, you know, like, and it's really cool that they did it so soon. Mm. Be given the situation they had, it was like their 200th wrestling match or something. Yeah. You know, uh, and that actually became the impetus for a lot of this, these mixing up of the character dynamics and digging a little deeper in the characters. Yeah. We do get, I think it's very important to point out two characters that also struggle more is Cherry played by Sidel Noel. We see more of her. And also, uh, very spoilery to say, but Sheila the She-Wolf also goes through some changes as well, played by Gail Rankin in this season, uh, both of which I really liked to see. I thought were very interesting. Yeah, I, I have to say, I think my favorite character is the, the She-Wolf. Yeah. I, I love her, and I love what she did this season. Yeah, it's good stuff. So we highly recommend if you haven't caught up, do check out Glow on Netflix. All right, that'll about do it for the week in review. Now it's time for the main event 
and our review of Pixar's Onward. In times of old, the world was full of wonder and magic. But times change. I'm a mighty warrior! Morning, Mom! Hey, birthday boy! By the laws of yore, I must dub thee a man today. Kneel before me. That's okay. I have a gift from your dad. He just said to give you this when you were both over 16. <gasps> no way! It's a wizard staff. Dad was a wizard! What? Your dad was an accountant. This spell brings him back. For one whole day, Dad will be back. What? Back? Like back to life? That's not possible. It is with this. I'm gonna meet Dad. And that is from the trailer to Pixar's Onward, which does not have a very big cast. It stars Tom Holland, Chris Pratt, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Octavia Spencer, Lena Waite, Ellie Wong, Tracy Ullman, Vilmer Valderrama, and of course, one John Ratzenberger. It is directed by Dan Scanlon, who is new to me. I think she, he might be. This might be his first step up into the director's plate for Pixar. I will research him in a moment here. Uh, and the premise on IMDb is set in a suburban fantasy world. Two teenage elf brothers embark on a quest to discover if there is still magic out there that's not entirely accurate but even the trailer tells you that it has to do with their father who let's say half reveals himself this is also the director of monsters university so i was mistaken this is not dan scanlon's first pixar film so when we review a film what we like to do is first focus on the good what we liked about a movie what was positive about it what worked for us before moving on to the bad, the negative, what sucked about a movie, what were its flaws. And then we, of course, we weigh whether or not the good outweighs the bad. And then we do spoilers and final thoughts, any that we might have about a film. So, Shanna, I'm curious. When this movie's trailers hit the theater months ago... I was not terribly excited or sold on it. I knew that we'd end up watching it regardless, but uh, there wasn't anything about it that necessarily excited me about the film. I'm curious for you what your ant- level of anticipation was for this movie based on the trailers and marketing leading up to it, and what worked for you about Onward. I have to tell you, I'm a regular visitor of the Disney store, which means I get to go to the movie screen that's over there. And they have different materials playing all the time. And so when I saw the teaser for this movie, I was very much like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? Oh, I was like, I don't know what this is. I don't know if I like it. I, I, I don't know what's happening here. And... 
I, I'm not sure if this is going to be a thing for me. So I was really hesitant, actually. And mm. then when the official trailer launched, I was uh, still a little unsure. I wasn't sold immediately. It wasn't like Inside Out, where I'm like, I'm sold, I'm there. It, it isn't like Soul, where I'm like, I am uh-huh. going to be there. I am going to be there Thursday night. Uh-huh. Okay. You know, so I was very hesitant. I think Soul was a movie that was on your most anticipated movies of the year list, even. Well, yeah. You know, so what? What? What was your experience watching this movie? And how did, if anything, it measure to your anticipation? I was so pleasantly surprised, mm. and I actually quite enjoyed this film and i wouldn't mind watching it again with our son you know watching it a second time in the cinema it's worth noting that we went uh on a evening that we did not have our son uh, at night and and we're in a fairly empty theater yeah i feel like there's less than 10 people kind of scattered throughout the screening yeah Anyway, so I really enjoyed this film. I was, I loved the direction the story went. It was super surprising for me because I didn't expect that kind of story to be told. Mm. Something that Pixar does really well is essentially verbalize experiences that we don't talk about that often, like with Inside Out's feelings, like with Up, the loss of a loved one and being alone, you know. And so with this one, you know, I guess we'll get into it later, but I was surprised the direction the story took. Yeah, I do want to dive into exactly what what it is you're referring to when we get into spoilers. If uh, if it is stuff that's beyond the first 20 minutes of the film that I you're also, referring to. You know, what I liked is this is back to world building. For Pixar. This mm. is a new world. Yeah. And so everything is obviously similar to, hu- you know, humans right now. Uh, even though this is... In what f- sense? Well, this is like a fantasy story with mermaids, unicorns. Mm-hmm. I was going to say orcas. <laughs> like, what is it called? Ogres? Sure. And what is, what is the main character? Elves. Elves, yeah. So, like, all the fantasy things... Matador? Is it a... No, not a Matador. Mantador? Centaur? A centaur. So, you know, like, they take it and make everything human. And my favorite design in their set design was actually the kitchen. And there's, like, this little microwave that has this very pleasing shape to it. And I was like, that is so cool. And, like, totally makes sense in that world. And I'm like, can I buy that? And that, that is something that you notice in the background of a scene. This is not something that's Yeah, it's not at the forefront. At and I'm like trying to get your attention to tell you how cool that microwave is. Yeah. I mean, we kind of need a new microwave, so maybe it <laughs> is actually on my radar. Okay. <laughs> but I loved all the little designs. I feel like they hit a new level of animation advancement because the expressions that these fantasy creatures had was so human Hmm. and so accurate and so fast, Hmm. if that makes sense. You know, usually with Pixar, the expressions are very slow. Like a character will say something and then it'll pan to the other character and the expression is already there. Whereas here, you actually see the expression change from neutral into fear or into sadness or into anger or into bafflement, you know? Hmm. And it was just... 
all the little twitches in the facial cheek muscles and all the little twitches in the brow. And it's not just the eyes. It's it's everything else, too. Even the ears move a little bit, you know? I don't know anything about the production of this film, but I will say, to your point, there were moments where I got a hint of Chris Pratt's face. Yes. Underneath this overweight. <laughs> they were elf. definitely watching his face. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Just little expressions kind of came through in that in that way. Anything else you liked uh but oh, that you thought was good about Onward? I thought the music was pretty unique. I don't think I've listened to these composers before. I think it's Dana is their is their surname. Uh, there's two people, uh-huh. Micah Dana and then someone else Dana. And uh, I need to listen to the soundtrack again. It's very short bursts of pieces. It didn't hit me as hard as Up or Inside Out, but I I did really like the direction that it went. Yeah, Jeff it had and this, Ma- like, Michael Dana. Michael oh, okay. with M-Y-C-H-A-E-L, kind of unusual spelling, yeah. So I, I really loved the direction it went. It was very rock, but like fantasy rock. So it was really fun. It was like kind of light uh, Siberian well, orchestra. Yeah. So funny stuff. how you always go to Siberian orchestra with anything rough, vaguely metal. It's, it, it, well, it that's was, the one that I like. <laughs> it was playing with this motif of the Chris Pratt character, whose name I should actually credit as Barley. Barley Lightfoot. He has this like very. He's like that brother in the eighties who was into metal. You know, he's got the and loves you the ruffled <laughs> jean vest with with uh and I know patches not, not ruffled but frayed pins yes, exactly those all kinds the of textures. Things. He's got this van that's outlandishly painted and it's kind of a pos and. You know, these kinds of things. So he's he's kind of, and he's got these, this studded bracelet. He's got this vague 80s hairband or, or metal vibe to him and in terms of what his interests are. So the score definitely reflects that often. It's funny because I think that the set design reflects it too. In the kitchen, there's a lot of browns and creams. Huh. And I feel like that's an 80s thing. Interesting. Yeah. I really love the characters. I fell in love with them pretty quick. And this film is, is it's not like a normal Disney film. In this film, there's no take backsies. There's no, there's no cheating. So at times, and, and you get that. You mean from, like it doesn't pull its punches? Yeah. And you get that from the minute it starts, that mm. it's not going to pull punches. And it's kind of scary. I kind of, my tummy did a flip because oh. it was like, oh, now I don't know how much I'm going to cry. And I know that's a normal question to ask yourself when you go to a Pixar film. But uh-huh. At the same time, I was like, I really want to laugh. And there were so many good parts to this film that made me laugh hysterically. Mm. It was also really realistic. Yeah, to, uh, let, me, let me speak to the point of the humor first. This movie was very funny. It was very clever. And we did laugh a lot. I feel like in some ways we appreciated the humor and the cleverness more than most in our tiny little screening, I should say, a group, little focus group that we had with us. <laughs> yes, it's touching. I started to think that right about the 20-minute mark where the plot really starts getting going and what you see in the trailer, 
there's some things that's touched on with parents and and children that started to be very touching and moving and i was like oh boy this movie's (laughs) this movie's gonna just destroy me by the end i just know it and i ended up being wrong about that this movie wasn't nearly as moving as i expected Particularly in the ways that it starts setting up in the first uh, 20 minutes. Now, we can talk about, in spoilers, other ways that it might, you know, how it kind of changes directions a little on you in its emotional journey. But it definitely didn't, it wasn't as affecting for me. I know this is probably greatly subjective, but it wasn't as affecting for me as some of their other work like that you name checked like up like inside out of course you know i never expect another movie to destroy me within the first 10 minutes like up did right oh my God. like that's an out that's an that's, absurd that's thing, right? what up should be known for it, it is, pretty much is, is the one the one it that pretty does much that. is yeah i don't expect that you know but that kind of emotional resonance that kind of honesty that really connects is something that is the bar. It really set the bar high. Mm. And I don't think onward for me, it didn't, it didn't hit hit that bar. So this is a good thing. Uh, You know, no, not necessarily, (laughs) but I don't dock the movie for that. I'm just saying, I'm just reflecting my emotional. Just so our audience knows, Jeff and I haven't spoken about this off mic. That's true. So things might get real here. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> I was not prepared for that. But just segueing into other things I think worked really well in the film, Holland, Tom Holland and Pratt work really well, as well as the all the voices in the cast. You could argue that Chris Pratt draws attention to himself as, oh, that's totally Chris Pratt. But I don't think you could say that about the rest of the voices, really. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that's totally Spider-Man. I know that voice. But uh, not nearly, not that much. And I certainly didn't have that with the rest of the supporting characters. It, they were, it felt like while there are recognizable names in the cast, it felt like it was cast to what was right for the character. And I will say that this movie might have Octavia Spencer's best character. Oh, I loved it. It was so great. She plays the manticore that you see in the the trailer. And I think probably her best character moments are in the first scene that you meet her. And I don't want to necessarily give that away, but it is what creates the impetus for her to help out the mom, Laurel, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who I didn't even recognize was Julia Louis-Dreyfus. That's how oh. well she blended for me as as a character in this in, in this film. She wasn't she didn't stand out as a quote unquote star voice, and I think that's a really strong thing for a voice actor uh, or or a voice director even to be looking for in who they're going to cast. And I thought that was one of the film's strengths. I thought it worked really well in terms of the voice casting. They got really great people to perform, but they weren't people that were drawing attention to themselves per se. Chris Pratt just can't help it. He's just kind of like, he's just got one of those big personalities. He's, he's a magnet. Yeah, for sure. And he's well cast as Barley because Barley kind of has one of those big personalities too, mm-hmm. right? So it works in that sense too. 
Uh, the movie is definitely better than I expected. I started to get a sense, oh, this movie might be quite touching. It might be quite moving. Oh, you know, it's kind of clever how it plays with fantasy iconography. The movie's not really about playing with the fantasy iconography too much. It has a very big role-playing RPG tabletop uh, game aspect to it, um, which isn't necessarily obvious in, in the marketing per se, but it's set up in the first 20 minutes very easily. And it's really more playing with that than it is playing with, you know, this is not the Shrek of Pixar, right? You know, it's not trying to be so out and out overtly clever with fantasy archetypes or fairy tale archetypes. No, it's just it's just a medium to tell the yes, greatest story. Exactly. And there's some themes that we can talk about regarding that as well. The technology. You touched a little bit on the technology. To me, what stood out to me was the hair. It made me want to compare the original Monsters Incorporated, which oh, yeah. was when Pixar was really trying to show off, hey, this is what we can do with hair now, to the hairdos of the main elves in this yeah, movie very shiny i don't know what hair product they use but <laughs> i i want it well the texturing was just so impressive to me it mm. looked like real hair and you know there's a shot of a sweatshirt in this movie and you could see the thread count it, in it the sweatshirt. feels like a rough sweater yeah you the, just look at it and you can feel it exactly the texturing in this uh, film is is really cool and really impressive. Uh, and anything else I have to say is really more spoilery. Shanna, was there anything that did not work for you about this movie? What was the bad? What didn't kind of stood out and was like, oh, that scene didn't make much sense or whatever it might be? No, I, I, d I don't think I experienced that in this film. And, you know, I'm usually like, well, where are the women? But I really appreciated this film because it looks at how boys, how men should be towards each other. Okay. And, and I just, I really appreciated that because I thought to myself, well, there's all these strong female characters recently and I'm very excited about them. And please don't stop doing that because, you know, we've got a lot to catch up with. But... We also need heroes, realistic heroes for our boys to look up to and mm. act like and mm. and be like. And that's what you get from Barley here. It's like, you should be like Barley. Maybe not necessarily with a big gap year at home. But, <laughs> that line know, from the mom The longest on. gap year oh, ever. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. And it probably is just a year. It just feels fucking awful. Mm. But that energy and that love and compassion for your fellow brothers is really something we should be seeing more of. Let's talk more about that in spoilers. So, but no, you're not criticizing any of no, that. No, I'm None not. Of that is the bad. No, um, <laughs> I, I can't think of bad. What I usually go to is where are the women? And yeah. no, the women are pretty good in here when we do see them. And it's, it's about a male bonding story and it's, it's rightly told. So I don't have any bad. The other thing we haven't spoken to actually before we wrap up, we should speak to is how one of the themes about this movie is about magic, right? Believing in something and how, how science essentially has made things convenient, right? Yeah. And, and how it's taken something away from us. Now you could see that as an allegory for religion versus science, 
You could see it as an allegory for something else about where we are as a society and, you know, how something may have been lost and as we have all these technological developments and, you know, uh, you know, things kind of get shaved down and softened in terms of before in terms of what they used to be and what they are now, all that sort of stuff. Uh, fairies, they haven't had to fly in so long because they have motorcycles that they can ride now, you know. Or yeah, and then the centaurs, the boyfriend, yeah. Centaurs don't need to run and use their own quote unquote horsepower yeah. because now they have cars <laughs> with two hundred horsepower, you know. Anyway, yeah. So I think that that's interesting thing, and ultimately the movie isn't necessarily about that, but it is kind of setting the stage and part of the world building and kind of the backdrop of this. Do you feel that that coheres well with the rest of the story? The The underlying theme? Yeah, it doesn't quite merge with the main story, right? So, like, do you feel it's at odds? I think it can. I think you have to make the connection yourself, which kind of speaks to its theme as well. You know, you can make the the similarity between we're not connecting with each other anymore. We're not giving each other one-on-one. We're on our phones all the time. And so I I feel like if you can, if I put it into context for what I can understand, like, that's where I put it. Mm. Like, we're not connecting with each other. We're not going on road trips. We're not going on quests, you know? Yeah, okay, Um, yeah. Taking the easy way rather than the long way or the hard way. Yeah, let's just go sit down. I guess that's a literal metaphor, that highway versus the... The The scenic route. Yeah. You know, that's that's featured in cars as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Yeah, I think it's it's fine. I think you have to do a little work to put it together, and not in a bad way. Uh In a, if the movie did its job, you're making connections. Very good. Okay. Do you think this is on the level of Pixar's best? And if not, what prevents it from being that? I um, might need more time to process that. I... I think about how my emotions go with each Pixar film and up was where I cried the most. It was all up front, but (laughs) up was when you were down the most (laughs) was down the most. And then Coco, I cried throughout the entire thing. And like, I think of inside out and that one gets me so bad, Mm. you know, try not to choke up here, Uh but I feel like maybe it's lacking that push just a tish. How much of that do you think is subjective to your experience and your ability to connect with these characters' experiences? Uh, Well, I mean, you know, Up made me cry when I didn't want to get married, Mm. when I didn't want to have a a future with someone. Okay. So I I think what Pixar does well is it makes you you relate Mm. to whoever the character is and It'll make you cry. And not that I didn't cry in this one. I did. I just felt like it... it I think maybe the music cue was a tish off. Huh. Whereas with Inside Out, you know, there's two distinct music pieces, I remember. In Up, there's one distinct piece. So I feel like maybe that was missing for me. So yeah, it is subjective. I will say, in terms of the score, you say Inside Out, and that tinkling little score immediately comes to ding, my mind. Ding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I can't say that there is a piece from da, 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 da. 
Onward. No, and that oh, sounds like you're seeing sorry. entertainment tonight to no, me from the eighties. That's not what I was doing. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, so <laughs> the score does. Yeah. Maybe the score isn't. It's being more creative and a little bit more out of the box than what you typically get from Pixar. And it's but exciting. I don't think it's, it's as memorable. Memorable. I don't yeah. think it resonates as strongly. It just missed it by like a hair. Is you it? You know, and mm. I feel like we needed that little strand of hair. Maybe a little bit more for me in that regard. While I don't think there's certain any any particular plot points that I could point to as issues or flaws or things that don't necessarily make sense, why does this happen? Why does that happen? All that sort of stuff. I as the story as a whole, I don't think it is strong enough to rank among the top tier Pixar classics. I think it's probably second tier Pixar. But that's nothing to sniff at. You know, that's still really good. We're a far cry from Cars and Cars 2 here. This movie is not nonsensical in its world building and slapstick. And and it doesn't mm-hmm. resort to uh, the, the worst that you can find in animation. I have a harder time connecting with the good dinosaul. Oh, I forgot I about the we good see, dinosaur. That's, that's why. Um, so I have a harder time connecting with that one compared to this one. I'm connecting probably as uh, well as I connected with Toy Story 2 and Toy Story with this one. Oh, wow. So uh, not Toy Story 3, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, okay. Uh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, uh, I forgot about The Good Dinosaur. I think at the time I compared it to The Revenant. It's like The Revenant of Pixar movies. Yes, um, yes it is. <laughs> it's Yeah, but I completely forgot that it existed. So it is definitely on the lower end of the Pixar scale. But I would say this is probably along lines of just shy of Ratatouille level. Made oh. above. Um, this is a step up from Monsters University, having come yes. from the same director. I think it's a little better than Brave, although I do. Oh, yeah. I, I love Brave so much. And I do not. I think Brave right. is fine. You know, I <laughs> think Brave is as good as Monsters <laughs> University. You know, uh-huh. uh, we we're, we differ on that one uh, yeah. greatly. But this is Bugs Life level. Maybe a little above Bugs Life, you know, in terms of the original, the old classic, old classic. Now I can speak like oh, an old it's man. It's way better than Bugs Life. You yeah, know? yeah. So the, you know, we'll they, have to rewrite the good. Definitely, regardless, the good yeah. definitely outweighs the bad in terms of this film. What do you give it a scale of ten? Oh, um, probably an eight and a half. Wow, that's yeah, really maybe high. an eight. I, I'm not sure. It's somewhere in there. I give it a seven. Oh, Which, that's a bit you know, low. I don't know about that. I think it's a really good movie. I don't think it's a great movie. I think it's a really good movie. And I think, uh, you know, a seven reflects that. So we both recommend seeing Onward. If you're family that's looking for something to be able to take the kids to, I don't think Onward will disappoint, especially if you're a family with siblings, Mm -hmm. grade school or even middle school level siblings. I think... This will be funny. It'll be enjoyable. It'll be a really good time. And uh, I think it's worth checking out for sure on that level. All right. So from here on out, shall we move on into spoilers and finish up our discussion? Sure. Okay. So if you haven't seen Onward yet, skip ahead to Film Faves, looking at the timestamp in the show notes. Because from here on out, we're going to speak spoilers for Pixar's Onward. Oh my god, 
they're selling the dragon as a plushie and I totally fucking want it. I even want him. <laughs> it's so weird. Him being the dad. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so funny. There's a couple things you said I want you to return to that oh, you're being okay. vague about. Let's spend a minute allowing you the opportunity to expound on some of your thoughts that you said earlier. They're selling the pixies. So let's talk about what kind of story we're dealing with. Okay. Go ahead. The best way I can describe it is Pixar is helping us verbalize the relationship between two siblings, the two sibling dynamic, the oldest and the youngest, and how the oldest, you know, is is there to protect and nurture and love and the youngest looks up to the oldest. And sometimes that's a hard concept to understand, especially if you're any age where you haven't been away from your your sibling, you Mm, know. As the older sibling. Yeah. And, you know, I'm an older sibling, so I totally relate to what's happening with Barley. Not that I didn't have a parent. I didn't lose a parent. And so that's a thing, too. It's like, okay, Neither now, of us did. now he's stepping in as a parent figure as well. It is it's kind of reflected in yeah. that way. And not in like a pressure. What's unique about it is it's not in like a, I hate that I have to do this role. It's a, no, I just, I really love my brother. Yeah, but it's not even something that Barley seems to be doing intentionally it's some yeah it's not hard to do that it comes naturally to him that he doesn't even necessarily think about that and it's a reveal in the film that what's his name ian has to come to yeah at the end that he because he has this checklist right of things he wants to do with his dad and he realizes that he has been doing those things with his big brother. And his brother's been the paternal figure in his life all this time. I'm curious, did you see, were you tracking the movie and seeing that kind of build and uh, ahead of time? How did that reveal hit you? No, I I wasn't getting that until near the end. No, actually, I didn't realize that. Not at all. No. Yeah. Because I was too stressed (laughs) about what might happen. I was too stressed about the fight that was going to happen. And the thing is... The fight being what? Like, okay, you have two siblings, okay? It's two people. And there's pressures and feelings for each person. And so there's going to be two fights. Each person has like some feelings that they want to share and it's going to be revealed. And that's what I was really stressed about. I thought the brothers were going to break apart. Okay. And so I was too busy focusing on the stress of that (laughs) to focus on, on anything else. But I think the way they did it, you don't really pick up on that. What you do pick up on is like a brother that re- like the older brother that really loves his younger brother and is fighting really hard mm. to to make this this spell work. Yeah. And so when that reveal happened, how wh- how did that land for you? Oh, I cried a lot. <laughs> okay. So I'm trying not to cry right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Yeah. It worked for me. Yeah. It totally worked for me. Yo, <sighs> Since we're kind of in that realm of the the movie, 
what's surprising to me is they're going on this quest to be able to see their dad for a day and spend a day with their dad or however much time is left within 24 hours because there is this ticking clock element to the story of completing this quest by sundown. So you expect the goal is for Ian especially to be able to have a conversation face-to-face with his dad. And the movie surprisingly makes it about Barley being able to say goodbye to his dad. And Ian, he he doesn't he get he only sees his dad from afar. Yeah. You know, and he doesn't even get to see him straight on. Yeah. He only sees like kind of his profile, kind of. He's turned a little bit away. It's from like a Ian. three quarter view. Yeah. Maybe. You don't even hear the dad's voice, which really surprised me because I was like, oh, who's going to play the dad? All that sort of stuff. And it becomes this private moment between Barley and his father, Mm. which, you know, Barley does share with Ian. And it turns out like that conversation ended up being about Ian and how Barley has not only contributed to who Ian has become, but also who he's become too. And that is genuinely moving as I explain that, Hmm. right? It's because this isn't a father-son movie. No. It it, it turns out it's a a movie about brothers. And uh, I think that's, that's really surprising and very touching. You know... I'm a younger brother. I'm a young. I am a younger brother, uh, and you are an older sister. And I feel like inherently the the story is going to affect us differently, right? Because you are in no way like Barley, but you are Barley in terms of roles, and I am in no way like Ian, but I am Ian in terms of the roles here. Yeah, you know. And I, I don't want to get too much into it personally for me, but let's just say I didn't have the same experience Ian has. Do you feel like you have the same experience Barley has? So I've had to, we've had to do this. This is the third time now where I'm trying to speak. Um, just in response to that question. Yeah, just in response to the question. Yeah, I absolutely feel like I can relate uh, to Barley. unfortunately I think of all the times when I wasn't the best sister because uh you know when you are the oldest there there are some pressures that come with it in in the setting and I'm not like Barley where he's like he's like this invincible confident being so it just it just depends but I also it makes me think of my brother I mean he was my best friend growing up he was my my constant. He was there for me every time I was upset. Like he would always make me happy. So he's a really good younger brother. It's almost like he's Barley and I'm Ian. So our characters are kind of switched. Huh. But like our roles are, you know, what they are. Mm. And so it makes me really emotional. Yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> Uh, well, <clears throat> so I, I, I think that they, they hit it on the head. Like, I think it's great. I can totally relate. It makes me think about my brother and my relationship. It makes me want to be 
better. So I think it's I think it's a great movie. What was it you said off mic to me when you were trying to compose yourself <laughs> what, about what the movie, it? about the experience watching it versus thinking about it? Oh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, like, you know how when you watch Up and you see that, that first 10 minutes and you, you, you're just completely shredded? So it's an immediate response from the story. But with this this movie... It's it's not necessarily going to be an immediate response. It's gonna it's gonna happen when you think about the movie later. So you know you'll be an emotional wreck later. This is <laughs> this is hopefully what other people are experiencing too. This is what you have to look forward to if you're listening to spoilers without watching the movie first. You know, <laughs> like being a bit of an emotional wreck. I'm really glad that they made this film. Very good. All right. Well, I think that about does it for our thoughts on Onward. What do you think about the film? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. And feel free with that just for fun to show us your ranking list of Pixar films. We've already done that on this podcast in the past, but it'd be kind of fun to hear uh, listener input on that and where Onward falls. I gave you my top three Pixar films that make me cry. What are your top three that make you cry? What were your top three? It's It goes up, Coco, Inside Out. Oh, see, I, I, I guess I need to rewatch Coco because I do forget that one sometimes. I You know, up, Inside Out, uh, Toy Story 3. Oh, yeah, maybe. yeah, that's good. I You know, there's other ones that do hit me, but I think those are the first three that come to my mind right now. Toy Story 2, when Sarah McLaughlin sings, I have to leave oh. the room <laughs> because it's just too yeah. much. It's just too much for me. Gotcha. All right. Shall we move on to film faves? Let's. All right. Well, Pixar has been responsible for an era of great animation. Let's see if the 70s... Uh, was a great era of animation as well, and where, if any, examples fall in our list. Film Faves is our opportunity to count down our favorite movies about a particular topic, sometimes marching backwards through time. We give our respective lists of 12 favorite movies, no honorable mentions, partially for the purpose of kind of giving you a taste of our what our tastes in movies are, but also to hopefully expose you to movies that you may not have heard of before. And with this topic, it's a really great opportunity to do just that. Uh, To that end, we do try to share with you when a movie is available on a streaming subscription service, though that is not often always the case. But when it is available on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, HBO Now, or Disney+, Plus. We will be sure to note that for your benefit. Now, we've spent the past couple of years on this segment going year by year backwards through time. Toward the end of last year, as we came to the end of or the beginning of the 80s, as you, depending on how you look at it, we started to join years together. Now, the plan was always to do this and to always start after the 80s, 1980 was the year I was born, to go decade by decade. Now, the practical reason for this is really they're just in terms of release, quantity of releases per year declined greatly 
over over time, right? It, or I should say increased greatly over time, right? To more recent years where we have 800 movies a year being released. Back then, there was only like a couple hundred movies a year being released in theaters. So a lot less to draw from. A lot more obscure titles as we go back further and further. A lot more forgotten to time. So as such, what I wanted to do is end this aspect of it going decade by decade, 70s, 60s, 50s, uh, 40s, and then the 30s, 30s being the last one. So that's always been kind of the map that we go, that we've been following. So that's why the decade. And whereas in the past we have done only uh, movies available to stream for a certain decade. That's not going to be the case from here on out. We're acting like our normal countdown and noting what movies are available to stream. Now, the 70s. The 70s are considered one of the greatest decades in film ever. The reason partially for this is because this was the, the prime era of the new Hollywood era, right? You had, in case you're not terribly familiar, the history of film was kind of broken up as thus. The silent film era, the golden age of Hollywood, or the studio era, new Hollywood, and then you had this kind of modern era and the digital era, which is kind of where we're at right now. Uh, The modern is kind of where the blockbusters really came to prominence and you started getting a lot more like of a business aspect, a business focused sort of thing going on in the 80s and 90s. So New Hollywood is a fascinating era that started in the mid 60s and ended in the first couple of years of the of the 80s. So the 70s was New Hollywood 100%. And it kind of makes it an exciting decade on that on that level alone. And what happened was you started to get a sh- you had kind of a shift by this time of instead of studios being the authority of of the creative process, you had the directors being seen as the create uh, as the, the authority, and you had this whole new generation, young generation, as connecting to young viewers. You know, it's like seventy percent of moviegoers by the mid seventies were under the age of thirty, right? And so, as a, so, because of this, you start to see a lot more exciting, daring, creative, dynamic uh, forms of storytelling, and you had. A plethora of incredible directors come up during this time. We're talking Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Robert Altman, Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, Michelangelo Antonini, Hal Ashby. The list goes on. Francis Ford Coppola, you know. So many people that would greatly affect filmmakers today and the past 20 years, right? And in fact... Any of these people who might still be alive and working today are considered like the utmost respectable of directors in terms of their body of work. Not necessarily always personal lives, but, you know, we don't have to get into that. So it's a very exciting decade to kind of focus on. We have a lot to draw from, I think. To that end, Shanna, I'm hoping I'm not forgetting anything that I wanted to touch on, but how many films 
have you seen from the decades that you had to draw from for your list? I had seen 51. Okay. And I had 158 movies I have seen. So I literally have seen three times as many films as you to draw from for this list. Well, and it wasn't a pretty cool decade. I wanted to see more, but there's only so much time. We'll talk more about that a little bit later, but was it a challenge trying to formulate this list in in so much as like, well, I guess it's worth asking both ways. Like, was it hard for you to draw from this decade movies that you loved or was it actually like too many movies and it was really hard to whittle it down to 12? This was actually difficult to do. There were a lot of movies that I loved and there were a lot of movies that I liked. And there were a few that I hated, but if I hated them, I hated them. So that was that was <laughs> pretty that cool. That. that was pretty cool. It was like it was it was it was straight. You yeah. know, it was like you either liked it or you didn't. So okay. I really liked that about the decade. And there was a lot of good stuff and a lot of variety mm-hmm. in this decade. Very cool. Now we just watched an animated film from one of the top studios of of this past 25 years was the 70s a good decade for animation and i don't want you to necessarily give anything away but will we see any animated picks on your list you'll see one maybe i i don't think it was an astounding decade mm. for animation I, I i think i think the that decade was a little darker animation wise not that it was badly animated. It was great. It was, you know, the normal hand-drawn thing. Yeah. But, you know, there were darker themes in it. That's true. This was, this, this, that goes, so most And even people, children's movies. Yes. So. Most people, when they think of the 70s in terms of animation, they think of what few Disney movies came out in that time. This was also important to remind, this was the era that Ralph Bakshi came, up, uh, came out with his films, I think he did the Lord of the Rings animated movie. And I think like Fritz the Cat came out around this time too. And uh, maybe even Heavy Metal came out, if I'm not mistaken. Just really bonkers out there stuff. And also this is the decade where Miyazaki first came onto the scene. Way before he would form Studio Ghibli. But there was some anime stuff out there. Like Castle of Cagliostro, which was directed by Miyazaki, Hayao Miyazaki as well. You know, so there was a little bit of a variety, but you know, I think I think it's fair to say not the best era in terms of animation. Uh, and it'll be interesting to hear what you did pick from the crop in terms of that for your list. But with that, now that I feel like I've tried to exhaust every aspect of this incredible decade why don't you start leading us in to anything else you want to say about your list and what your number 12 favorite was it looks like my list was very much magic versus reality and even though there was magic in some of these films that i picked they had realism to them they had real life problems uh involved with them so it's 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 very interesting i feel like my list is kind of extreme extreme with 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 magic mixed with realism and by magic i mean like like a fantasy story versus 
a real life story of a cop undercover. You know, gotcha. That gotcha. kind of thing. Okay. Or, or like a, the Nixon problem. So mm. my number 12 is Dog Day Afternoon from 1975. This is starring Al Pacino as someone going in and trying to rob a bank so that he can get the money for his friend who wants to have... What do you call that surgery? Well, back then it was referred to as a sex change operation. Yeah. And this isn't his friend, it's his lover. Oh, sorry. Um, yes. So he's trying to, to get the money to to save the life of his lover because his his lover was, uh, I think, tried to commit suicide and mm. got hospitalized. So he's desperate, right? He wants to make sure that... His lover is going to be okay. And, so and transitions tra- too. Yeah. And so he he goes ahead and he tries to rob this bank. Well, I mean, this is quite an interesting <laughs> rob the bank kind of situation. It gets more interesting when you realize it's based on a true story. Hmm. So I highly recommend this one. I, I really loved where the story went. I, I loved his character. I loved who he was. I wanted him to win. <laughs> You know, and how often do I want a bank robber to win? Not not very often. <laughs> I don't want to walk into a bank with a bank robber, you know. So I, I I really loved this film. And without this film, you wouldn't have, like, interesting bank robbing films like Inside, Inside Man, you know, I feel. I feel like the interesting element of the film is more the human element than the ins and outs of the actual robbery or the job itself, like most bank robbery movies do focus on. If I remember correctly, Inside Man is one of those two, but I have vague memories of that movie. Uh, but I'm really glad that you love that movie. Yes, you are very vague. Okay, what's your number okay. 12? Uh, before I do, I did remember one last thing I wanted to touch on. Were there any particular years from the decade that ended up being favorites that stood out to you that the most on your list? Excuse me, on your list. It looks like 77 was a pretty magical year and it looks like 71 children's film wise was really interesting for me um and then let's look here you know 75 is featured twice no sorry i think three times and that's a pretty interesting year and i guess i'll talk about that when i reveal the other two that are, are in there but my first one dog day afternoon is from 75 yeah uh, for me it was 1975 and 1977 stood out the most in terms of what definitely made it on my list. If I take into consideration the 25 movies that I boiled it down to to try to get onto a list, I definitely favored more the second half of the decade than the first half of the decade. But I think like 1974 was another year that came up a lot for me. But definitely in the end, 75 and 77 were great years for this decade. And we will... I will show you some examples as to why that is. But first, my number 12 is a documentary from that decade. Not, you know, people don't necessarily think about documentaries as being very popular or interesting in that era, probably really dry stuff. But we've seen a couple. And out of the three or four that I have seen from that era, Woodstock from 1970 made my list this is a what three and a half hour film or something that is now i mean it's pretty intense it's it's pretty long yeah but it has not only is it the 
the best depiction you will ever get of this festival, despite it being sometimes chronologically out of order or not necessarily following the set, the, the actual roster list in order, but you get a sense of the immensity of this event. You get a sense of how such a thing was actually truly remarkable and will never, despite many attempts, to ever be repeated again in the way in which it happened. And on top of it all, of course, there's really great music and great performances in it that I really think help you keep chugging along pretty easily with this lengthy documentary. I don't think it necessarily feels like it's really long. I don't necessarily think it drags in any way. Uh, So I love Woodstock from 1970. That is my number 12. Shannon, what is your number 11? That was a really good pick. Thank you. It also shows like what the culture was. Yes. Like who was attracted to this festival. And I really loved seeing what these people were like because obviously our idea and interpretation of it has been affected by other extremist views. Well, you know, there's a stereotype that comes with that event. And I think that this documentary really helps destroy that stereotype. Yeah. So it's got a really good purpose. My number 11 is Robin Hood from 1973. Uh, Speaking of (laughs) magic and reality, this is dealing with the reality of taxes draining a community. Even though there's all this fun stuff happening and, you know, the theme song of Oodalali Oodalali constantly going through the film. (laughs) I like the characters. I I even like the bad characters. I like the snake, uh, Hiss, and I like the bad guy. Is it Sir John? Uh, Prince John. Prince John, yes. Yeah, I, I love how he's just such a big baby. He literally has to suck his thumb to feel okay. If you're going to have a jab at irresponsible people using taxes in irresponsible ways, that's a fun way to poke fun at them, you know? I, I, I love that we get to see foxes as main characters. Usually they're bad guys, and hmm. yeah, they're, they're good. So it's really fun. That is an excellent pick. It just was outside of my list. Probably my favorite Disney movie from that decade. My number 11 is from 1977. It is Close Encounters of the Third Kind by Steven Spielberg. A film that is absolutely stunning and remarkable still to this day i think i get moved by the score i mean john williams probably one of the greatest score uh, composers to come from the 70s close encounters of the third kind is a great example of why and his music was able to be to help move and uh, help create an emotional connection to what is happening. And just this awe-inspiring moment that happens in the third act of the film. It's so funny. I'm actually focusing on the third act of the film so much. The rest of the film is really about Richard Dreyfuss as this man who's driven and becomes obsessed by these UFO sightings and what it all means. And, and 
kind of just these visions that kind of come to him of a tower that he must go find and see. And I can't remember the woman in it too, that becomes his companion. I, oh, she's, she's a great actress too. And she's been in so many things in that era, but uh, he, she of course accompanies him on this journey. And what's interesting is it doesn't become, you know, they're not love interests. For each other. Mm. You know, they have this shared experience. I appreciate that about the film. Yeah. They have these shared experiences and respective experiences with the third kind, let's say. And that's what drives them and brings them together. But it's never sexual. It's never non-platonic. And that's really admirable. Nice change of pace. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's some really great stuff, great visuals in this film. And I love it. So my number 10 is also Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, no shit. Really? Yeah. But I wanted to really let you talk about about it. I think you have you have a more succinct way of describing the film. Hmm. I, I love it for its music. I, I love it for the third act. Sometimes I find myself disappearing during the first and second act, and I just come back when it's the third act. Hmm. Uh, the ending is my favorite. It's just so odd and beautiful at the same time. Awesome. So, let's see. That brings me to my number 10, yeah? Yeah. It is Greece, 1978. <laughs> One of two or three musicals on nice. my, that made it to my list, interestingly enough. That's great. I'm not a Greece fanatic. I'm not someone who flipped out anytime there is a reunion or a release of the film or, or the whatever. T- or the, you know... The school doing it or that school doing yeah, it. Yeah, nothing. I'm not yeah. someone who dresses up. But it's just something that's had a presence in my life. The songs have had a presence in my life growing up that it just kind of became kind of part of that fabric of growing up in the 80s. You know, I mean, this movie came out two years before I was born. And it is, of course, the movie that probably made John Travolta an icon. Although Saturday Night Fever came out the year before this and that movie is definitely known for its dance moves and his dancing and, and the, the way that shot. And it helped kind of really shoot him up into stardom. Uh, I think this movie built on top of that. Same thing with Olivia Newton-John, who was a country singer who, who ended up doing this movie that be, shot her into the mainstream, I think. Uh, you know, and, and kind of an iconography of two types of ideal women depending on your leanings. But yeah, I don't know. Grease is a fun movie. It's one of those movies that's great when you come of age and you start realizing what the hell they're actually saying in the lyrics. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe I saw this as a kid. But it's a fun movie and I enjoy it quite a bit. It's my number 10 favorite 70s movie. So my number nine is The Godfather from 1972. Uh, I mean, that score is amazing. Mm-hmm. You just need to hear the first little bit and you know what, what's happening. And you know exactly what movie it is. Yeah. I don't know what the best way is to describe this film. The reason I like it is because it's a film about family. Mm. It's a film about siblings. <laughs> to an extent, yes. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, you know. There's an interesting brother dynamic. There is, and there's more than one. Yeah, that's Here's true. an example of what happens <laughs> if you have four sons as opposed to two. And a daughter. So I, I really love this film for its depiction of family. 
it definitely shows you what was happening at the time. There's certain fam- family values that I don't agree with, and that's beyond the murder thing. And it, it just, I find it really interesting. It's a very long film. I feel like it gets better as I get older, mm. and the more I watch it, the better the experience I have. Mm. I first watched it when I think I was 16. Okay, yeah. Trying to watch it, and I like, I enjoyed it because oh. I love the mafia theme. Yeah. I and mean, that whole theme of loyalty. And you had mentioned before, it's one of your favorites. It is one of my favorites. You know, my cousins, my brother and I, we, we tried making our own little, like, mafia family godfather type film, you know, when we were playing around as teenagers. It's, it's an interesting point you're making. People mostly think of it as a mafia film, but, but it really is a film about family. It really is about family and, like, the extremes of it. It's like uh, uh, Don Colleone, played by Marlon Brando, wonderfully, says so early on in the movie, you know, we're not the murderers so-and-so thinks we are. Yeah, he's almost telling you this isn't the film that you think it is. Mm. You know, it's mm. not about what you think it is. Yeah, I loved everyone's performances. Uh, this is a male-dominated film, but sure. I, you know, that's just how it is. You can watch The Kitchen, and then you'll know all about it. So, uh, not nearly as good a movie, but yes. No, but just to, if you needed a different side represented. So yeah, that's my number nine. I really love that film. Very cool. My number nine is on Disney Plus from 1971. It is Bedknobs and Broomsticks. I freaking love that film. Uh, starring Angela Lansbury and David Tomlinson, who are both absolutely delightful. It's an interesting one because it's set during World War II, which I think most people kind of forget. There's a little bit it's of set up in the beginning of this woman who is actually a practicing witch. She gets saddled with these kids who have been kind of orphaned because of the war. Oh, I I wasn't sure if they were orphaned. I just thought, you know, because London had to send all the children out of the city, whether they had parents or not. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. See, very important. All these elements people forget. Uh, They all, and David Tomlinson, who has an association with Angela Lansbury, I can't remember very well. Um, or I think they meet him on the street. He's kind of a street peddler. Uh, at any rate, they all get swept away in this magical journey on a bed. Of course, this is actually based on a children's book. I wonder if any of our listeners have read that children's book. But this is a, a movie where that you do have segments that blend animation and live action together, all depending on where their magical journey takes them. And as a kid, I always loved the third act, which I won't spoil, but it does involve soldiers and it it involves knights and magic. And it is pretty awesome. Has some really great music in it as well. Shanna, what is your next favorite 70s film? My next one is Picnic at Hanging Rock from, this is another one, 1975. Oh. Okay. So this is the second of the three. It's such an odd film. It's it's so weird in how it's shot. What this film is about is uh, it's t- it's it's based on the Australian novel about a group of schoolgirls. Um, it's a boarding school. They go out on a picnic to Hanging Rock, and these children. Some of these children, I think it's like three children, and a teacher disappear without a trace. 
Nobody knows where they are. Nobody knows what's happened to them. It's it's very odd. People at this back at the school, including classmates and teachers, uh, deal with the loss of them, and the police are baffled. And it's just it's it's a very strange film, and it's shot differently. It's very screechy. Like the there's a lot of people. There's one character that screams a lot. Oh, interesting. Um, which, as we found out when watching 1970 films, is not okay for me. Sound design not, sometimes. Yeah, sound design is not my favorite in that decade. Mm. Uh, but what the reason I wanted to put it on my list too, I like the film, but I love the show even better uh, because it takes its time. Okay. And so I feel like people should definitely watch this film. It's a Criterion film. and uh, so It's probably on the Criterion Channel subscription service if they oh, have yeah. that too. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Maybe we should do that. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's my number eight. Very cool. My number eight is from 1979. It is available right now on HBO Now. It is the remarkable Apocalypse Now. One of the greatest war films ever made. Are definitely one of Francis Ford Coppola's greatest films. I was going to say his greatest film, but then you know you had just talked about The Godfather, and that one and its sequel are are pretty darn good as well. But I always loved Apocalypse Now. I that really struck me when I first saw it twenty years ago or so. It's it's uh, there's so much iconography from it, so much stuff that that became just part of film canon in terms of what we think about what's quoted so much what's utilized and parodied and kind of into the fabric of pop culture from colonel from colonel kirk's and kurtz and his meanderings about madness to oh i forget i always forget um robert duvall's character's name kilgore Colonel Kilgore's, you know, adoration of the smell of napalm in the morning. There's some really great sequences in this <laughs> film and how things are shot, how you even see uh, the director makes a cameo as a director of, uh, of, you know, kind of filming the war as it happens. The great, really great, you know, uh, storming of the beach sequence that's, that's in this film. So much, so much that's just wonderful and thematically rich and just remarkable visually. I uh, love this film, Apocalypse Now. It is easily one of my favorite war films of all time. It is my eighth favorite 70s film available on HBO Now. My number seven is Serpico. Oh, very cool. From 1973. So talk about extremes, right? Uh, this is also based on a true story. Yeah, I think so. And it's Al Pacino again. Yep. So bottom of my list, Al Pacino, true story. Middle of my list, just about. He may be your favorite actor of the 70s because... I mean, he might be because he's also in... The Godfather of 72. 73 was Serpico. 75 was Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. So he might be the favorite. Yeah. You know, this... uh, I'm going to go off memory, but this is the film that I wanted to revisit but couldn't. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about a cop who... You know, he's known for... During a turbulent time of cops taking bribes, he's known for not taking bribes and really trying to get the root of the problem uh, that's happening, of the crime 
Mm-hmm. You know, the crime. The corruption. The corruption, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the different categories, you know. And, you know, there's a lot of crime films that came out in the 70s. Yeah. A lot that I showed you, thinking, well, this will definitely be up yes, your alley. you thought I'd love them. And, and then I would hate them. this the only one that ended up on your list? Well, you showed me Dog Day Afternoon. Doesn't that kind of count? It is a crime to rob a bank. Sure. I guess I'm thinking, like, more uh, cops and... Uh, whatever like this is as copy as it gets there you go no dirty harry no french connection nothing like that all right so for my next favorite film as we get close to the halfway mark here is from 1975 it is one flew over the cuckoo's nest starring jack nicholson as well as danny devito and christopher lloyd and i think stephen wright is in it as well if i'm not mistaken and I, wonderful woman who plays Lois Fletcher plays Nurse Ratchet, one of the most uh, upsetting <laughs> and greatest villains ever in film history. I read the novel by Ken Kesey in college. What a wonderful, beautiful, just rich novel. A very different experience from the film in many ways, but the film also ends up being a wonderful, beautiful, and often funny and infuriating story. In case you're not familiar, it is about this guy who gets, what's the word, uh, for lack of a better term, put into a mental institution, and he doesn't have any mental disorders. He's not insane. He's not sociopathic or psychopathic or anything. And it's kind of about being in an institution and where the sane become mad. Is it because he's misdiagnosed? Uh, it's because he's a rebel. He's, mm. you know, he, he's a kind of a rule breaker. So he they, bucks authority. They, they don't want to put him in prison, so they put him in a mental hospital. Sort of. You kind of have to watch it to see the scene with him and the warden to explain it. But it is very much of a movie of its time thematically speaking to a generation of its time. And it's just a, it's just a great film. I love it. And if you haven't seen it, it is, a, it is one of those canonical must see films. That's one flew over the cuckoo's nest from 1975. My number six is All the President's Men from you, 1976. Are you serious? Yeah. You're not looking off of my list? N- no. Because that is my number six as well. I freaking right love that movie. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I really like when we're following journalists uh, trying to get at the truth about something, especially when it's political and especially when we're looking back on something and we can process it, you know, and handle it. And I think we're maybe getting better at that calling out nonsense i'd like to think we are Mm, it's Um, a tough era right now for that but it's really a great film great performances i love robert redford so stinking much in this film i think it's my favorite film of his oh and i love dustin hoffman i i don't usually take dustin hoffman seriously but i take him seriously in this film and i bet you have a bunch to say well, let me, and you probably can describe what the film's about way better than me. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the first important thing, in case anybody don't doesn't know. 
is based on a true story of Woodward and Bernstein, who I think, if I remember correctly, worked for the Washington Post. Yes. They uncovered the Watergate conspiracy by doing actual journalism, actual journalism, which is a thing they did in the 70s. Where they're um, like investigators. Where they're investigating, they're asking people Following questions. Following up on leads. Exactly. Fact-based. Absolutely. Uh, it's not emotional at all. Just trying to get at who said this, who did that. What, what does this document say? Exactly. It, it is absolutely riveting stuff especially as they kind of come into danger for what they're doing. As yeah, well, right? this is real life danger. Right. This is like a reporter could be shot, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. for lack of a bit. Um, I'm just going to say it what it is. They can be murdered for running after the truth. This is a real right. life thing you could get killed for. And this is actually the story that Deep Throat comes from. It wasn't just a porn film. The Deep Throat actually was a, a real thing, a real person. And this was... Their what, informant, right? Right, exactly, exactly. So great film, 100% agree with you on both the performances, the writing. This is the movie that set the bar for movies about journalism. And it holds up today. Now that we passed the halfway mark, what is your number five, Shanna? My number five is... Being there um, from 1979. Nice. It's about a gardener played by Peter Sellers. He works for someone very wealthy, very high society, and his entire life he's been educated about the world through television. And that is his view of the world. His view of the world is television and gardening experience. Uh, he comes across someone, a business mogul, and this business mogul assumes that. Chance is uh, an upper class person too. And I guess I just really like it because it's this really quirky story. It's really odd. All these people all of a sudden can't get enough of this man who was raised by television and, and gardening. Like, and they don't even I was know that, raised right? on television. Yeah, they don't realize of. that about him, right? They just think the things that he's saying are so wise. Yeah, yeah. He's like the new savior for high society or right. something. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, my f- fifth favorite movie from the 70s is, uh, again, 1975. It's available on Netflix. And the movie is Monty Python. And the Holy Grail. Oh, good for you. Yeah. I hate that movie. <laughs> I don't know who you are. I just don't understand how anyone can hate this movie that is so brilliant and so hilarious. I This is a movie that also was a, a family favorite. Grew up with this movie probably since middle school or something. You know, an age where you're remotely close to being appropriate to seeing some of the things that happen in this movie. I mean, like most of the best jokes that people recite or reference from Monty Python come from this movie. You know, the killer rabbit, the it's a flesh wound with the black knight, spank the virgin. Um, give, give us all the spanking. What the heck is oh, come that? On. You know what that is. You've seen the movie. No. Oh, my God. You need to watch it again. No. Uh, huge tracts of land, all sorts of things. Uh, so imminent, so in- endlessly quotable. It is episodic, but it is hilarious, so it doesn't matter. It's one of the greatest comedies of the 70s, hands down. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, I should clarify, it is kind of like this postmodern take on the Arthurian legend they're looking for. 
well, they're on the quest for the Holy Grail, duh. And they even talk with God and all that sort of stuff. It's absurd. I love it. So yeah, Shanna, what is your fourth favorite movie from the 1970s? My fourth favorite is from 1971. It's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh. I just, I just, his name is escaping me. Who is Willy Wonka? Oh my God, man. Gene Wilder. Thank you. I just love that man. He's so, he's just this sparkling soul. I just love him so much. Anyway, I love this film because not only is chocolate the main thing, the the children are the antagonists. And that's so odd to me because usually that's not the case. Usually if there's grownups and children, the grownups are the bad guys. And I just love that the children are really awful in this film. And you and I had talked about how consumerism is also the antagonist in this film. Mm. I love how insane Willy Wonka is, and it makes sense that it's Gene Wilder. It doesn't make sense that it's Johnny Depp next time, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's another movie that I just it was ubiquitous in my childhood. Yeah. Everyone I know grew up with that movie. I could do without the songs. Really? Even Oompa Loompa? Oh, no, no, that, that that's fine. Um, like the song about Charlie. Like, I can totally oh. do without that one. Yeah, I kind of agree about most of the songs being kind of forgettable. It's not great because of its music. That's for darn sure. It's great because of uh, how well it adapts. We're all dolls material. And, I mean, Gene Wilder is one of the most memed characters. I mean, <laughs> yes. his character, Willy Wonka, is one of the most memed characters uh, of the past, you know, 10 years or so. so. But that's none of my business. And what, Tell me more one? about oh. that or something. Anyway, my number four is my favorite movie from the first half of the decade. I, I did favor, you'll probably notice, I'm favoring more the second half of the decade than the first half. But this was definitely a standout from the first half. I could not leave out. It came out in 1971. It is Fiddler on the Roof, available on Amazon Prime. My favorite musical of that decade I actually just recently rewatched this film and it is beautiful and the music is great. And the story, which takes place, when does this take place? I think it's before a war. Uh, it has this racial tensions between around the, 1905. Yeah, okay, Russian yeah. Revolution. So it has this tension between Jews and Cos- Cossacks, I think. So there's some racial tensions in it. But all of this is about family. It's about growing up. It's about letting go. It's about differences between generations. It's about change. It's about tradition. It's about so much. It's ultimately about father and daughters. And there is something so emotionally resonant about this film. People probably when they think about this film think more about the music which is a great catalog of songs i absolutely love most of the songs from this movie but i really love topol as tevya the main character the father the patriarch of this family that we follow and his performance is so remarkable I that I I mean there's a reason why every Tevya performance since on stage has been measured to the the bar he set on this role. It's great. I love the film. I could carry on easily. I wish I could, but I will not. Obviously, 
Uh, it is my fourth favorite 70s film. It's available on Amazon Prime. My number three, my top third film of this decade is Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Really? Yeah. That's very surprising. This had a really big impact on my life. You know, I was watching Murder, She Wrote at a very young age. All of a sudden at daycare, I saw this movie and there's my favorite actress and she's a witch and it was very exciting for me it's during nine it's it's 1971 so there's the the other 1971 we were talking about Mm. and it's dealing with children being affected by war Mm. uh being sent away from the city or whether they want to be or not and how a woman who never had children didn't want children now has them and you know she was comfortable trying to figure out what she wanted in life and now she has to she has to figure out how to weave everything together and it ends up that children can be helpful when they help her you know get the things she needs for her uh, witch practice mm. and i love the performances i love the children i love the story i always forget where we eventually end up in the third act and that's totally fine because it's always like a surprise huh. you know and there's like you said there's animation mixed in with it and i just i love the it's lovely bobbing along mm-hmm. you know that song is just wonderful i always sing it to the kiddos so yeah awesome that is a big surprise and again that is on disney plus my third favorite movie from the 70s is from 1975. It is Jaws by Steven Spielberg. I am wearing my Jaws shirt right now as we record. This makes, I just looked through my list, and this effectively makes Steven Spielberg my favorite director of the 70s as this is his second film to make my list and the only director to have two films on my list, interestingly enough. Uh, the, look, you have the score, which is instantly recognizable, unforgettable, iconic, referenced all the time. You have this wonderful story about a shark kind of terrorizing this vacation town, uh, Amity, Amity, uh, Amity Island? Amity, Amity Island. Yeah. Amity Island. I remember, right? Yeah. I know things. <laughs> you have Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, and Robert Shaw making such an awesome kind of odd trio you know that that kind of are all different personalities coming together and one thing that's greatly effective about this film and makes really the opening act a terrifying five minutes is how you don't see the shark for most of the film you get hints of the shark and often the camera is from the perspective of the shark but you don't see the monster, the thing that, that is terrorizing this town for a long time. And I was watching The Creature from the Black Lagoon a few days ago, and I realized, you know, that movie does kind of the same things. And I kind of was thinking like, oh, well, though I know there's production reasons, realities that kind of made this necessary for getting the film made, but like maybe this is how... Like maybe Spielberg was influenced by Creatures from the Black Lagoon, and that's how he got it uh, to be so effective and make this problem that he was having with this animatronic shark work for him. Anyway, Jaws is one of the greatest films of all time, and it's my third favorite 70s film. You should check it out. 
That's wonderful, honey. Um, my number two is Star Wars. From really? From 77. It's my number two. Uh-huh. Don't get too upset. <laughs> it's not my favorite Star Wars, so that's why it's number two. Oh, okay, um, okay, okay. You know, so... Uh, you know, I think my brother, for his fifth birthday or something like that, somewhere around there, this is what we got to do. We got to go to the theater and we got to watch this one. And then the next year, it was the second one, and we got to watch that for my birthday. Or it was a month later. No, it must have been in the same year. Okay. They re- I'm sorry. They released all the movies again, like a month at a time. Uh. And so, it, you know, there's a lot of memory attached to that. And of course, you know, who doesn't love Star Wars? And where can people find that? Disney Plus. <laughs> That's right. My second favorite film of the 70s also comes from 1977. But is not a movie that is popular to announce as a favorite anymore, unfortunately. What have you got here? It is Woody Allen's Annie Hall. I see. Which I think is his greatest film. A lot of people like his dramatic work in the 80s, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Some people love Match Point in 2005. Crimes and Misdemeanors, indeed. Uh-huh. Yeah, I I I, I hear you. But I've always loved this film since I saw it over 20 years ago because not only is it playing with the form of the romantic comedy with having people saying things and having subtitles that read what they're actually saying. And having animation sequences and having, you know, these odd scenes of, of his childhood, you know, that may or may not be true of Al- Alfie, uh, played by Woody Allen. So many different things. He's playing with form and being so original and creative in ways that I don't know that many have even done since. That's really interesting. I thought 500 Days of Summer. That's the very good. Okay, yes. That is the one no, example. I'm paying attention. Yeah. No, very good. And, and like that film, or vice versa, this movie is also trying to say something about love and romance. And it, it is not a cookie-cutter love story in any way. You know, uh, as a matter of fact, like seven years before, one of the biggest hits was a movie called Love Story. You know, and this is not that by any stretch of the imagination. So I love it for all the things that it does that is so unusual from what the form has become and and has, has done and how like how different it is and also how brilliant and hilarious it truly is. And also Diane Keaton, man. She's really good in this movie. There's a lot of other people who became stars that make appearances. That's kind of fun to eagle eye in this movie. But Diane Keaton is really good in this film. She's really good in The Godfather, too, by the way. Well, I was going to say, anything that I think, anything that Diane Keaton does is pretty good. You know, I mean, these are probably her top two performances. Perhaps, perhaps. I Um, love her in First Wives Club. uh, All right. Yeah, so she's great in this film as well. I think it's not popular to say so, but this film, on its own merits, is a great film 
one of the best of its kind, and I love it. It is my second favorite movie from the 70s. Shanna, now is the time to reveal your favorite movie of the entire decade of the 70s. Yeah, sure. Is? Is from 1975. It's Jaws. No kidding. Jaws is my favorite favorite of the decade uh, i find that fascinating tell me why so i find you very sexy right now in your jaws <laughs> shirt over there my love <laughs> so is... you've ex- you've explained what it's about right yes. yeah i think just and maybe it's because of what we're going through right now that it's amplified further I think my favorite thing about this film before i get to this thing i'm talking about my favorite thing about this film is the music I just, I love that piece of freaking music. I had my toddler listen to it the other day. And you know what that poor little toddler said to me? He said to me, this is just like the baby shark song. And I'm like, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, out of all the songs to fuck with, like... You know, someone decided to take those first few pieces from baby and put it in Baby Shark. No kidding. So our child will not be listening to Baby Shark. We will be sheltering them. They they will know John Williams. And you know, I'm doing a good job because now the kiddo sees John Williams' face and is like, "Is this John Williams?" And I'm like, "Yes, it is." And he's responsible for a lot of great shit. That's awesome. I mean, I don't say it like that, but that would be great too. Anyway, <laughs> I think what I what I'm really acutely aware of right now about what I like about this film is the mayor. The mayor really? is <laughs> is saying, I'm acutely aware of him. I, I love this film for a lot of things that you actually shared, but okay. what I'm really, what I can do with this film right now is make reference to it with what's happening right now. Mm. The mayor wants the summer fest, the beach fest, whatever day it's Tourism. called. Yep. He wants that day to continue because he knows that that's going to bring in so many people, bring in so many dollars, blah, 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 blah. Sure, we all have good intentions. We want the, the city, the town to have money. But you don't give a shit about person A or person B who loses their whoever. Their son. Yeah, to, to a shark. You don't care. Mm-hmm. And I just find it very interesting because now I'm kind of comparing it to the coronavirus. When the ECC was going to continue, I was like, this is the part this is in Seattle Jaws. Comic-Con. Yeah, this is the part in Jaws when you say that you're going to continue with your event and you probably shouldn't. Now, I will say the event, ECC, did postpone. So they did the right move in the end. But I will say, like, telling, describing to my parents what was happening, I was like, this is the moment in Jaws. <laughs> and for us not to pay attention would be bad. So I, I really love how, how many things it tackles in this film. Hmm. It, it tackles, is your mayor slightly corrupt? You know, like, has he got everyone's intentions really at heart? Yeah. Like, has he got, does he care about them really? You know, are you listening to the scientist? Are you listening to the fisherman expert? Are you listening, uh, you know, how's your sheriff doing? You know, so it's all these little pieces that make more and more sense as my life experiences expand. Well, well, that is one heck of a surprise. That is really great. Uh, my favorite movie of the decade will not be nearly as surprising. <laughs> I was going to say, you're still hot to me. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Uh, it is also 1977 on Disney Plus, though bastardized. It is Star Wars, 
and the you know originally called Star Wars, now known as A New Hope. You know, yeah, it is on Disney Plus. But I, I I hesitate to recommend people check that out just because what's on Disney Plus is the special edition version and then some, because he's tinkered with that even more, and and I find that um, very frustrating because. What is great about the film is what it was originally, not what George Lucas thinks the finished product should be decades later. Uh, this is probably the best example of how the director's cut is not an improvement on the original film. The original film is absolutely magical because it doesn't have all those wonderful polished effects. It's all practical. It's all these things that he had to figure out how to do with models and and the the restraints that he had at the time with the time restraints he had at the time that practically killed him with all the stress and it's just uh, uh, it's the movie. I guess we should sit in that and appreciate that. Yeah. 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 And of course it is my favorite franchise of mm. all time. It's the one that started it. And, you know, being a movie buff, one of the hardest questions you get from people is what's your favorite movie? And I did ultimately land on a realization a couple years ago that this is my favorite movie of all time, or at least, you know, the franchise is as a whole, not all of them, uh, but this one for sure is one of them. It's also one of the most thematically rich films, if I may, really briefly. This is one of the few movies <laughs> that you can actually, like, dissect. You can yeah. actually actually have to parse out and 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 can be a, a room for discussion after the movie this isn't just a plot driven story this is a this is a story that deals with mythology this is a movie that deals with uh, you know the hero's journey and so many other things uh, it deals with industrial versus faith and all this sort of stuff uh so like that's not true for all the star wars movies uh, but this is one of the ones that is true for. So I, I love it for that as well. So and, and it's an absolute blast. And it's really hard to actually sit down and try to dissect it because it is an absolute fun ride, too. So Star Wars 1977, my favorite movie of the 70s. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so but Shannon, before we wrap up, were there any other movies that were in consideration that you just had a really hard time leaving them off your list uh, that, that that just you know you're wrestling with that you want to just give brief shout outs to yeah i actually realized that i wasn't able to get body snatches on here i'm really surprised that's on your I list i freaking loved that film i loved it so freaking much i mean i don't know what i would have taken off of here maybe Maybe because you had Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I could have slipped it in there. Uh-huh. It would have ranked, you know, around 10, 11, 12, somewhere around there. I really liked it. I, yeah. I thought it was really good. That was a recent discovery yeah, for you. Yeah, and I don't mind watching it again so recently. Yeah. Others that I had a hard time with, you know, I had a hard time figuring out where each one was. Like, I knew Jaws, I knew where Jaws was going to go. I knew where President's Men was going to go. I didn't get to have Murder on the Orient Express. I expected um, that one on your yeah, list, too. Yeah, yeah, it was there for a while. Yeah. And I didn't get to have Harold and Maud. That was another one I expected yeah. on your list. Uh, the Conversation. There another was, one. There was... <laughs> 
like all the ones that you left off were and the then, ones I expected to and be. And then your Alice list. doesn't live here anymore. Oh man. Um, you know, that's a really good one. Even, even though it's painful at times to watch because it's so real, mm. it's it's good that it's out there. Is that your favorite Scorsese movie from the 70s? Oh, yeah, sure. That's awesome. Yeah, but we all know Wolf of Wall Street's my ultimate favorite of his. Uh, okay. It's, that's how it is. Um, <laughs> you know, I was considering Network, uh, and then The Rescuers. Ultimately, it came down to I love The Rescuers Down Under more, mm. even though The Rescuers is really good. Mm-hmm. Again, it's like the kid is, like this is the traditional storytelling where the kid is the good guy and the adult is the bad guy, you know? mm and then the mice save the day, you know, typical. So that's what I had. What about you? Well, okay. So I'll start with movies that you mentioned that I definitely considered. It was so, a really good decade. That's why yeah, it was so hard. Exactly. I told you. I told you. <laughs> uh, so Serpico, Murder on the Orient Express, The Godfather, Robin Hood, all of those that you mentioned were movies that I wrestled with getting on my list. Almost made it. Uh, Hearts and Minds from 1974, a really great documentary about the Vietnam War that blew almost, well, not literally because I wouldn't be alive, but it blew my mind when I saw it in my junior year of high school. Mm. A great documentary, also one I wanted to revisit but didn't get to before this episode. Rocky, Alien. American Graffiti from the 73, Young mm. Frankenstein. Yes, Young Frankenstein. Halloween from 78, Walkabout, which is a really great recent discovery. You've seen that? I saw that last year or the year before. Oh, I wanted to watch that because I always really see the it's in the Criterion section. Yeah, yeah. yeah. really good film. And Godfather Part Two and, and Bananas, also another wacky Woody Allen comedy. Any movies that you wanted to catch up with or revisit that you kind of regret not having been able to? I really wanted to revisit being there and all the president's men. I like, I remember all the president's men, but I couldn't remember being there, but I remember loving it. You know, when you just have a connection with the film emotionally. Yeah. And I remember emotionally attaching to that film, but I don't remember everything that happened into in it in fact i battled a lot trying to talk about it mm. uh, but i knew it was on my list somewhere and then i wanted to watch godfather 2 but we didn't get to because you know just watching godfather is like half a day yeah so yeah. you know with party breaks and food breaks you saw a lot of movies that were new to you were were there any others that you didn't get catch up with that you wanted to there was a documentary by, uh, I believe it's that French woman, and she speaks about the different, she interviews different women in different roles and talks about what it's like being a woman in the 70s. Oh, um, interesting. And I wanted to watch that. It's the artist we watched recently where she, I keep asking you the same question. Agnes Varda? Yes, yeah. Oh, I wonder what so movie I wanted that was. To, I wanted to watch that, but I wasn't able to watch that. And then... Yeah, I I guess that's the documentary that I missed out on. I have no interest in MASH because the TV show played all the time. That was one I could swear we had watched years ago, but you insisted we hadn't. Yeah, again, I either loved the films from the 70s or I hated them. Yeah. You know, and there was either room for them on the list or there wasn't. Um, Other ones I wanted to catch up with that I kind of regretted not being able to 
was like THX 1138. This seemed like a perfect example to finally catch up with that early George Lucas movie. Cabaret. Basically, basically anything by Bob Fosse. Anything about mm. Bob Fosse. Um, all that jazz were movies that I missed out on that I really thought this was a great opportunity. I would have liked to have seen Cabaret. Yeah, I've never seen that one. That's one I always put off, but this was a great opportunity to catch up with it, to see if it would have made my list at all. You know, those kinds of things. I think there was probably a couple others. The one that was on your list about the girls. Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yeah, Picnic at Hanging Rock. I wanted to see that. Didn't get to see that either. So, you know, there's, there's a few movies that unfortunately remained as blind spots uh, for me. And uh, several movies I wanted to revisit for you, show you and see if they would rank as as well on your list. Um, but it just didn't have the time, unfortunately. So, But those are our favorite movies from the 1970s. What are your favorite movies from the 1970s? Feel free to email us at the Gibson Review at gmail.com. That'll put an end to this episode of The Movie Lovers. Shanna, while I get our notes for our next episode, why don't you share with everyone where they can find you online? You can find me politely at Shanna underscore Paxton underscore photography on Instagram. Well, that was easy. Uh, of course, for the Gibson Review, we have our main blog, thegibsonreview.com, where you can find everything, past, present, and all the episodes from the movie lovers are posted on there as well. You can go to the social media pages on Facebook slash the Gibson Review and on Instagram, the Gibson99, to follow us there and be kept in the loop on things as they happen. And you can find me. On Flickchart, the Gibson 99, you can connect with me there, see my list. Shanna, you're also on Flickchart, too. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a weird username. It's Spellbinding A. Oh, uh, Spellbinding. I thought it was Spellbedinga for some reason. No, no, it's not that. <laughs> Spellbinding A. It's weirder. A. Okay. <laughs> All right. So next time on The Movie Lovers, we will be reviewing A Quiet Place Part Two. Exciting. And film faves will be counting down our favorite alien invasion movie. Oh, who knows? Maybe that's where my body snatchers can go. Well, perfect. Yeah, that's a great, ex- mm. great idea. Uh, Let's see where that ranks next week. Yeah, people will be able to find that episode on March 31st. Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye-bye. Hey there, this is Jeff. I wanted to add an addendum to this episode because obviously since we recorded this episode, the outbreak of COVID-19 has escalated exponentially. So a moment ago, you heard us say that the next thing that we will be reviewing and focusing on is A Quiet Place Part 2 and Alien Invasion Movies. Well, Of course, since we recorded such movies as A Quiet Place Part 2 have been delayed in their release, as is practically every movie 
on our schedule for the movie lovers for all the way into May. Actually, all the way to June, as a matter of fact. So, what I recommend is follow us on the Gibson99 on Instagram. I will be posting updates to our schedule on there. We will probably be doing a a special pandemic episode looking at uh, movies about virus outbreaks. So, but keep uh, keep following us on Instagram for updates along those lines, as well as updates to future episodes of the Movie Lovers. Obviously, we will have to play things one episode at a time for the time being. In the meantime, keep listening. Feel free to interact with us on social media and be safe and take care.